I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 1, Chapter 4, Shakespeare's Language, Session 2, Meter and Rhythm. We all empathize not only into what we see, but also into what we hear. Painters appeal to our sight, composers to our hearing. In a broad way, dramatic poets have the advantage, and the challenge, of appealing to both. We see characters on the stage doing things, and at the same time, we hear them saying words. Whether or not it is part of a dramatic performance on stage, poetry combines three vehicles of meaning into a single experience. That is, when we hear or read a poem, a. We see the images that the words or sentences form in our mind's eye. b. We understand the concept or idea that the words denote and c. We hear the sounds of the words and of their arrangement. In the work of great poets, this fusion of pathways into our empathic experience is complete. Image, idea, and sound become a single experience of meaning. Let us look now specifically at the sound elements in Shakespeare's poetry. The three most fundamental ways of manipulating sounds in English poetry are onomatopoeia, pacing, and repetition. The first fundamental way of conveying meaning through sound is in some ways the simplest and most obvious figure of speech, onomatopoeia. This word, from the Greek onoma, meaning name, and poiein, meaning to make, names the quality of a word or phrase whose sound, when we say it, is the same as the sound of what it names. The words buzz and hiss are good examples. Shakespeare can be very inventive with this figure of speech. For example, in the first line of Sonnet 12, when I do count the clock that tells the time, the regular rhythm and repetition of the hard C and T sounds make the line itself sound like the ticking of a clock. Shakespeare can make this simple figure of speech carry profound meaning, as when, in the great temptation scene, he has Lady Macbeth's sounding like the serpent she has alluded to in her hunger for solely sovereign sway and masterdom. I discussed this line in talking about sound and sense in Chapter 1, Session 3. The second fundamental method of making sound meaningful is by pacing. By this I mean here not the overall pace of a speech or a scene, but the arrangement of stresses in any single line of verse. That arrangement can be subdivided into meter and rhythm. As actor and dramaturge Dakin Matthews puts it in his podcast series Sheltering with Shakespeare, meter is the imposition of an artificial beat upon the natural rhythms of normal speech. We can also see it the other way round. In poetry, rhythm is the variations that natural speech plays upon an expected meter. Let's first talk about meter. By contrast with ancient Greek and Latin verse, which was quantitative, that is, measured by the longer or shorter length of time it took to pronounce a syllable's vowel, English verse is accentual, that is, founded on the difference in our speech between stressed and unstressed syllables. 
Stress refers to the greater power with which we drive air through our vocal cords when we say a stressed syllable. In the word smoky, for example, English speakers place a heavier weight or stress on the first syllable, smoke, than on the second, e, smoky. We don't say smoky. In the word computer, the heavier stress is on the middle syllable. We don't say computer or computer. The other syllables are called unstressed. In practice, there are varying degrees of stress, heavy and light, but for our purposes now, we will focus only on the major distinction. As a side note, in written discussions about poetry, it is common to indicate stressed syllables by placing a small acute accent mark or slash above the syllable's vowel. Where both stressed and unstressed syllables are marked, an unstressed syllable is indicated by a breve, the lower half of a little circle, above the vowel of the syllable. In English, meter refers to the expected arrangement of stressed and unstressed syllables in a line of verse that could be indicated by a drumbeat. Here again are three lines of Polonius from Hamlet. This above all to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day thou canst not then be false to any man. If we wanted to speak the meter of that last line, Thou canst not then be false to any man, without using words, we might say it this way. Tatum, 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 tatum. Ta, symbolizing the unstressed syllables, and tum, symbolizing the stressed. In writing, we would put an accent mark over the syllables canst, then, false, n, in any, and man, and we would put a breve over the syllables thou, not, be, to, and e in any. This process of discerning the stressed and unstressed syllables in a line of verse is called scanning or scansion. Now, what is iambic pentameter? Once we have scanned a line and discerned the metrical pattern, we can name it. Its name will be a combination of two parts. The first part is the name of the foot, that is, the particular combination of stressed and unstressed syllables forming a metrical unit. The principal metrical feet in English poetry are these. The iam, I-A-M-B, which goes tatum. The trochee, which goes tumta. The spondy, two stresses together, Tum tum, the dactyl, tum tata, and the anapest, ta ta tum. The second part of the name of a meter is the number of feet in the line. In the case of Polonius's line, thou canst not then be false to any man, the line has five iambic feet. Hence the meter of Polonius's line is called iambic pentameter. Iambic because the particular metrical foot made of an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable is called an iam, from the Greek word iambos, meaning a metrical foot with one short vowel syllable followed by one long vowel syllable, and pentameter, from the Greek penta, meaning five, and metron, meaning measure.
because there are five iams in each line. So, iambic pentameter simply means lines of verse that fit the expected meter of five iams per line. Tatum, 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 tatum. No matter what particular rhythmic variations the poet has introduced into a given line. Here's another side note. Sometimes Shakespeare will split a line of verse among two or more characters. When this happens, in the printed version, the start of each speaker's speech after the first will be indented. In Julius Caesar, Act 1, Scene 3, Line 41, Cassius says, Who's there? Then Casca says, A Roman. Then Cassius says, Casca by your voice. In print, Cassius' first phrase, Who's there? is flush left. Casca's phrase, a Roman, is indented to the right, and Cassius' phrase, Casca by your voice, is indented further to the right. This is to indicate in print that the three phrases form a single iambic pentameter line. Who's there? A Roman Casca by your voice. The vast majority of verse lines in Shakespeare's plays and poems are in iambic pentameter. But Shakespeare also uses other meters for particular effects. Here is an example of iambic tetrameter, four iams to the line. As you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. That's from the Tempest epilogue, last lines. Here are two lines in trochaic tetrameter, tumpta, 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 tumpta. More nor less to others paying than by self-offenses weighing. That's for measure for measure, Act 3, Scene 2, lines 265 to 66. And of course, I'm exaggerating the stresses so that you can hear them. Here are two lines in amphibrachic meter, tatumta, tatumta. Have more than thou showest, speak less than thou knowest. That's King Lear, Act 1, Scene 4, line 118 to 119. Here are two in iambic trimeter, tatum, tatum, tatum. That lord that counseled thee to give away thy land, that's King Lear, Act 1, Scene 4, Line 140-41. And here are two in trochaic tetrameter catalectic, tumta, 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 tum. So they loved as love in twain had the essence but in one. Catalectic means the final unstressed syllable is cut off. This is a form Shakespeare used in his poem called The Phoenix and the Turtle, from which these lines come. I plan to discuss that poem in Series 1, Chapter 12. Other feet used in English include the amphimiser, tum-ta-tum, and the pyrrhic, ta-ta. This last foot can appear only as a variation within other meters, but obviously cannot form its own poetic meter. You couldn't have a line of verse with no stresses. Lines of verse are said to have either masculine or feminine endings. What is meant by these terms? Within Shakespeare's standard iambic pentameter, lines can properly end in two ways, with a stressed syllable or with an additional unstressed syllable. The first is called a masculine ending, and the second a feminine ending. Here are two consecutive lines from King Lear, Act 2, Scene 4, 
lines 266 and 267. Allow not nature more than nature needs. Man's life is cheap as beasts. Thou art a lady. The first line has a masculine ending, that is, it ends on the stressed syllable of a final I am, needs. The second line has a feminine ending, the dy of lady forming an extra unstressed syllable at the end of a line of five I ams. Here are two more examples from Twelfth Night. The first line of the play has a masculine ending, if music be the food of love, play on. Here is Act 2, Scene 2, Line 22, which has a feminine ending. She loves me, sure, the cunning of her passion. What is blank verse? Blank verse is the name given to lines of iambic pentameter that do not rhyme. Actor and dramaturge Dakin Matthews argues, very insightfully, that it came to be known as blank verse because, being unlimited by rhyme, this form of verse is available for any variety of stresses determined by the meaning with which the poet wants to fill it. Hence, it is a verse form that acts like a blank slate. The vast majority of the verse lines in Shakespeare's plays are in blank verse, unrhymed iambic pentameter. Now let's turn from meter to rhythm. By contrast with meter, the ordered structure of stresses in the general model or template of a line of verse, rhythm refers to the variations played upon the meter by the way the particular words and their arrangement in a particular line would be uttered in natural speech. We could say that if the meter is the drumbeat of expected stresses, then the rhythm is the melody of actual stresses. Let's take some examples. Here's a silly parody spoken by Bottom the Weaver in Act 1, Scene 2, lines 31 to 38 of A Midsummer Night's Dream. The raging rocks and shivering shocks shall break the locks of prison gates, and Phoebus' car shall shine from far and make and mar the foolish fates. This poem is in iambic dimeter, two iambic feet per line, ta-tum, ta-tum. If we scan the lines, that is, note the stressed and unstressed syllables, the poem will sound like this. I'll exaggerate to make the point. The raging rocks and shivering shocks shall break the locks of prison gates, and Fibiscar shall shine from far and make and mar the foolish fates. You can hear that every line except the second is perfectly regular. That is, the rhythm and meter are the same. Only in the second line is there a possible variation if we pronounce the one additional unstressed syllable in shivering. But even that line may be intended to be regular if we take the E in shivering to be elided to shivering. Now let's look again at the final couplet of Sonnet 94. If I exaggerate the stressed syllables, the lines will sound like this. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. The first line is largely a regular iambic line with five stresses in normal iambic position. Or we might read it as four heavy stresses and one light stress on by. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. 
The second line, however, lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds, considerably alters the expectation, adjusts the template, modifies the model. There is a stress on the first syllable, lil, which makes the first foot a troche, tumta, lilies. That is followed by an iam, that fest. The stress on the first syllable of the line, followed by two unstressed syllables together, lees that, throws a heavier than usual stress onto the fourth syllable of the line, fest. Lil lees that fest. So instead of tatum tatum, we get tum tatatum, lil lees that fest. Then, where we would expect an unstressed syllable on far, we are probably intended to place a stress, which makes three stresses in a row. This, together with the final stress on weeds, which is also the final rhyme word of the couplet, makes a line of unusually emphatic stresses, the emphasis arising, in part, from this audible departure from the expectations set up in us by the regular rhythm of the previous line. In nonsense syllables, the rhythm of these lines would sound like this. Ta-tum, 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 ta-tum. Tum, ta-ta-tum, ta-tum, tum, tum, ta-tum. Again, meter means the expected pattern of stresses of the line. Rhythm means the actual arrangement of stresses in a line, whether it fits the meter exactly or not. Here the meter is iambic pentameter, and it appears almost exactly in the rhythm of the first line. In the second line, the rhythm plays intentionally and significantly against the meter. If the actual rhythm of verse fits reasonably into its expected meter, we say that the line scans. If not, it fails to scan. Here are two versions of a two-line poem in anapestic tetrameter, four feet of ta-ta-tum. Which of them scans, and which fails to scan? The first is this. Then a pounding of hoofbeats was felt in the earth when the horses stampeding appeared on the ridge. Here's the second. Then a pounding of hoofbeats was felt in the earth when the horses stampeding appeared on the horizon. In the second version, where the meter demands a stressed word of one syllable, like ridge, at the end of the second line we get instead a three-syllable word, horizon, that, because of its two excess unstressed syllables, simply doesn't fit the meter. We say the line does not scan. Scanning a line for the meter is essential in knowing how Shakespeare means a line to be said. For example, the meter of a line will determine whether or not we must pronounce the ed of a past tense verb or participle as an unstressed syllable. In the following line of Horatio from Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 2, Line 203, by their oppressed and fear-surprised eyes, the first ed in oppressed forms no unstressed syllable. The second ed, surprised, must form an unstressed syllable, or else the line fails to scan. If we tried to say the line any other way, it would not scan. That is, it wouldn't fit properly with the meter. 
by their oppressed and fear-surprised eyes. Ta-tum, ta-tum, ta-ta-tum, ta-ta-tum. Only four feet. Or by their oppressed and fear-surprised eyes. Ta-tum, 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 ta-tum. Which puts an annoying extra unstressed syllable in the middle of the line. Or by their oppressed and fear-surprised eyes. Ta-tum, 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 ta-ta-tum. Only four feet again. If we elide the first ed, that is, don't pronounce it as a syllable, and pronounce the second as a syllable, we get it right, by their oppressed and fear-surprised eyes. Here's another line from Hamlet in which scanning the line tells us how to say it. If it were written in modern English, it would read like this, The oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely. We would have way too many syllables if we gave full weight to the word the and gave contumely four syllables with the stress on the second syllable as in modern speech. But Shakespeare means us to elide the word the with oppressors and to make contumely in fact three syllables with the main stress on the first syllable and another lesser stress on the last. So the line correctly reads, the pressers wrong and proud man's contumely. Technically here, the L-Y syllable at the very end takes not a full stress, but a secondary stress. In the next session, we will continue with rhetorical devices rooted in sound by looking at repetition, including rhyme, and then turn to rhetorical devices rooted in structure. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Thank you.